0: Hello everyone and welcome to Always Ready, a production of thechristianmanifesto.org where we are seeking to equip others to apply a biblical worldview in all of life. I am your host, Jared Links, and today in this episode, we're going to be diving into the unchanging nature of God. This is part of a series of episodes that I started on this podcast detailing five doctrines that I think that we as the church need to be especially clear about. Perhaps we haven't been so clear about these particular areas in days past. So I want us to dive into several passages and several aspects of the doctrine of the unchangeable nature of God, also called the immutability of God. And I want us to start by examining Malachi chapter 3 verse 6. For I the Lord do not change, therefore you, O children of Jacob. Are not consumed. And now a little bit of context is helpful for us at this particular point so we can understand exactly what is going on in this passage. That as we study the book of Malachi, what we see is that the nation of Israel has rejected the ways of God. They have been rebellious, they have been hard hearted against Him. And so you see a breakdown of the family. You see in Malachi 1 6, where Uh, They are being indicted because they do not honor God. They do not have respect uh, for the God who has created them, for the God who has called them. In Malachi 1, verse 12, they're actually charged for profaning the Lord's name. Uh, The priest did not speak the truth, according to Malachi 2, 7. In Malachi 2, 13 through 16, it records the unfaithfulness of the people within the covenant of marriage. And so we could go on and on here. But uh, what I want you to see is that this is really a tremendous breakdown uh, of the Israelite nation in terms of they're not honoring God in several different aspects uh, of their life. That This is affecting their worship. This is affecting how they view God. This is impacting their family life. It's impacting the priests who are not speaking the truth. Every single aspect of the Israelites uh, has been rebellious against God here in this particular passage, in this particular prophetic book. And so, as we come to Malachi 3.6, it's speaking to the truth that God is not going to completely consume them, uh, but that He is going to redeem some of them because of the fact that He does not change. Uh, which brings me to the foundation for us here, is that the, we need to talk about the foundation for the unchanging nature of God. And the starting point to understanding that God does not change is to comprehend that he is actually self-existent. And so what I am getting at by that particular phrase is that God does not need anyone or anything else in order for him to exist. And you might be wondering, where is that in this verse? Well, it's when it says, I the Lord. Uh, that Yahweh is actually the word used translated in our English Bibles as the Lord. And the name Yahweh, it shows the supreme self-existent nature of God, Uh, that He is gloriously transcendent of His creation, that He is the supreme Lord over it all. Uh, he, He doesn't need me. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need humanity or any part of His creation in order to exist. And so, as we dive into the unchangeable nature of God, uh, this doctrine regarding God's self-existence—it's really pivotal for us to understand. Uh, that if you think about the contrast here between us as human beings and God on this particular point, is really mind-blowing. Uh, we, as humans, we we need others to exist. Uh, whenever you're born, you're dependent upon your parents, you're dependent upon your family to provide for you, to take care of you, to feed you, to nourish you. And that's the same for all of us as human beings. We're dependent upon someone else. And as we continue to grow up and to mature, um, growing into the stage of young children and even into our early teenage years and so forth, we're still very dependent upon others, that we're depending upon others to to provide for us and to help us to grow and to learn and to understand um, as Christians how to live glorifying to God, that we're very dependent upon other people. And even as we enter into adulthood, there's still a a level of dependence that we have. Um, Even if you are completely independent in terms of your food supply, uh, drop me an email if you are because I'd probably like to learn from you. Uh, but even if you're completely independent in terms of that and you have your own business, um, that, that would be a pretty high level of independence of what we consider being independent if you work for yourself and provide all your own food and all that. But you're still to some degree going to be dependent on others because you have to have customers to come to buy your product or to use your service in order to sustain that business. And at the very least, we're dependent upon God. Uh, we're dependent upon God because he is the author of our lives. He is the creator. He is the sustainer of our lives. And in Colossians 1.17, if you go and you examine that passage, what you see is that it is Jesus Christ who sustains the universe. So not only does he create it, he actually sustains it. And so you and I are only alive right now because of the sustaining grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we are dependent as human beings, in the sense that we do not exist in and of ourselves. At the very least, we are dependent upon God for our existence. But in contrast, God is not that way. He existed before anything else was ever created, and he always will continue to exist. In fact, his name, Yahweh, this name Yahweh, it is often translated as Jehovah in English. It occurs over six thousand times in the Old Testament. And that's really quite an astounding number. If you begin to try to wrap your mind around that, that, that means that this name is occurring frequently throughout the passage of the Old the text of the Old Testament. And one of the most famous of those usages is Exodus chapter 3 verses 13 through 15. And in that particular passage, we read that Moses said to God, "If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations." And so in verse 15, where the text says, the Lord, that again is the same Hebrew word as is used in Malachi chapter three, verse six. And so what is the entire theme of this well-known passage of scripture uh, where God is commissioning Moses, telling him to go out amongst the people, to go to the people of Israel? Uh, Well, he's, he's wanting them to have something by which they can understand that Moses is a messenger from God, so that whenever Moses goes to these people, he has a way to communicate to them that he actually is authentically from Yahweh. And so God says, Tell them, I am who I am, has sent you, the one who is constant, the one who continually never changes, the one who will be for eternity. And, and He says, I, Yahweh, the Elohim of your fathers. Yahweh indicating his self-existence, as we said. Elohim showing that he is the supreme, the sovereign one. And so this particular text is a superb lesson as to the character of God for us to consider. And so this relates to the unchangeable nature of God in this way, that since God has created everything, since he has everything that he needs in and of himself. In other words, he didn't create because he needed to in order to exist. He created to because he wanted to for his own glory. But he has everything he needs in and of himself. So what could ever cause him to change his mind? We're going to examine syntax, which explicitly say he doesn't change his mind. But this doctrine of God not needing anything else to exist... Already communicates the fact to us that He does not change because there's no need for Him to. And so let's move on here to examine a few of those explicit passages. Uh, we already saw this point clearly made, laid out in Malachi chapter three, verse six. The second part of that particular verse it says, "For I, the Lord, do not change." That's that's clear. Um, that's an explicit passage. As pretty much all of these will be. They're they're very direct, they're very explicit, it's very plain to read. Uh, James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, of whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we see in these, and there's, there's many, many more that we can go to, but we see just in these three verses, very clear, very explicit, statements showing that God does not change, that who he is is not going to change. Um, God is who he is, and he will always continue to be, because he is the ultimate perfection. He is perfection. He is ultimate goodness. He is justice. He is righteousness. Uh, there is nothing that he needs to add to his character. There is nothing that he needs to add to change in order to become better somehow. But what about the plans of God? Are, are there any statements showing that His plans do not change? Well, Isaiah 46, 8-11. It says, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose calling a bird of prey from the east, a man of of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purpose, and I will do it. Uh, This is a clear testimony to the unchanging plans of God. Uh, He has already declared the end from the beginning, uh, that he has already set forth his plans, and he will accomplish them. That is definite language. And so this is a very clear text showing that the plans of God do not change. And we know as Christians that his word, um, that the scripture, the revelation of God is not changing either, that it is that the canon is finished, it is complete. Uh, we read in at the last part of the book of Revelation, just to give you one quick verse here, Revelation twenty two eighteen through 19, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. There's a lot we can say about that verse, but um, foundationally, what we see here is God will protect his word. Uh, that God is finished revealing himself through the scripture. There's not going to be a 67th book added to the canon next year. It is a complete canon, all 66 books, the exact books that God inspired and no more will be added to them. And so what we see from these passages is very clearly the character of God does not change. The plans of God will not change. And the revelation, the Word of God, does not change because He has finished writing and inspiring the Scripture. Everything that we have, uh, that we need, is in the Word already. Uh, These are not difficult statements to interpret. They're they're very straightforward and explicit. But coming to that point, uh, I want to move on to examine some common objections to the unchangeable nature of God. So I, I cannot tell you, How many times I personally have had conversations with individuals who will reject this particular doctrine, that they believe that God does change or that His plans will change or some variation along those lines. Uh, In spite of all that we just read, all of the clear statements of Scripture, uh, they will say that, yes, God still changes His mind. Some people will. And that's why I actually included... Uh, this doctrine in the group of the ones that I think need to be clarified Uh, because there's at least a decent chance that if you or I go to the typical church down the road in our community, someone at that church, perhaps even the pastor of that church, will bring up an objection whenever you say that God does not change. And I figure I'm probably not the only one who's going to run into uh, such objections, and so it's probably helpful to spend some time considering these and giving a biblical faithful response to them. And so the first objection that I want to bring up here that that some people will assert is they will say that the scripture literally says that God's God regrets making a decision, which would mean that he changes his mind according to their viewpoint. First uh, Samuel chapter 15 is actually one of the landmark texts for us to go to kind of Uh, battle this out and to consider this particular issue. And so let's go there and let's read a few different verses here in this chapter. Uh, Let's read verses 10 through 11 first. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. So did you see that here, that the text says that God regrets that he makes Saul king. So, uh-oh, it looks like God is changing his mind. Do we need to change our particular theological position? Do I need to delete everything that I have recorded in the first 15 minutes of this podcast and start over and revise my theological understanding here? Well, I don't think so, but let's continue on. We read again in 1 Samuel fifteen thirty-five, And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So that's two, two statements in the same chapter where we see God saying, I have regretted that I've made Saul king. And so what is going on here in this text? Well, here is a good rule, a biblical interpretation for us to remember whenever we're coming to passages of Scripture seeking to understand what they mean. The same God who inspired Samuel is the same God who inspired the Apostle Paul, who inspired Malachi, who inspired the psalmist, the offer of Hebrews, and all of the other biblical offers? Okay, so that means that the Bible is not contradictory at all because God does not contradict himself. And so the key to understanding this whole thing is just to take a little bit closer look at the context of 1 Samuel 15. Uh, we've read these two statements here about God changing his mind, but s- about God regretting they made Saul king, excuse me, but sandwiched in between them, is verse twenty nine, and also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. And so here we have a very clear statement that God does not regret things. So we have seen that God does not change from other passages of Scripture as well. And so based on not only the context of First Samuel but also the total teaching of the Word of God, it would be incorrect for us to say that God changes his mind, regretting things in the sense that we as human beings do. He is certainly grieved by the actions of Saul here in this particular text. But That does not mean that he changes his mind like you and I do whenever we decide to change what we are going to get for lunch tomorrow. He is displeased by Saul's disobedience. But the purposes of God will continue. Uh, the word "regret" is used in a way that is humanly speaking; it's not referencing that God changes His mind. In other words, the passage is describing God with human language. Uh, let me give you a clear example of this type of thing going on in Scripture. So we have in John four twenty four, God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And so, God the Father does not have a physical body like we do. He is a spirit. Of course, we understand that Christ really did take on human flesh, but that's not what we're talking about here in this particular verse. God is spirit, and yet we read this in Psalm 89:13: You have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand. High your right hand. Uh, now, do we really believe that God has a literal arm or a hand whenever we read passages like this? Well, of course we don't. We understand it. this is symbolic language. And yet, it is used to reference the power and the mightiness of God. And let me give you another one, Isaiah 66, 1. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Well, what is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? Now, is this passage calling on us to believe that God is literally propped back in a lazy boy with his feet resting upon the earth? No, of course not. We understand that it is talking in a human way about God. And so in a similar manner, whenever we read statements about God changing his mind or regretting something like that, uh, we, we need to understand that this is the clear teaching of the Bible, that God does not regret like a man. And that's what First Samuel 15 literally says right in the middle of the text that he does not regret things like we do. That is a big, bold, 50-foot sign right in the middle of the chapter telling us, hey, God does not change like you do. I'm just using human language to describe God here in this point in the passage. Uh, God, God does not change his mind. So these texts are using symbolic uh, manner. They're communicating in a symbolic manner. And so is there any reason to believe on passages like First Samuel 15 and God changed his mind? No. He is simply expressing the grief and the sorrow at Saul's unfaithfulness, talking in a human way. Second objection here. God changed his mind about the destruction of Nineveh and at other points. Now remember how God, after telling Jonah a few times, that God ends up, um, he sends Jonah to the city of Nineveh which, like I said, took a few times. But Jonah eventually goes, and the city repents at his preaching. They repented, which Jonah got upset about, and then we find Jonah's message, actually, in chapter 3, verse 4 of that book. It says, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and none of us shall be overthrown. And so God threatens destruction upon Nineveh and sends Jonah to declare that message. He's saying that he would exercise his judgment, that he would overthrow them. But the people of Nineveh repent, and we read this in Jonah 3.10. When God saw what they did, how they returned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. God relented. So does that mean that God changes his mind? Well, here's one individual commenting on this passage. God, quote, changed his mind, referencing Jonah 3.10, about the destruction uh, he planned to carry out on Nineveh. If all events in history, this person says, are eternally settled and known by God as such, his word to Jonah that he planned to destroy Nineveh in 40 days was insincere, as was his inspired testimony that he, in fact, changed his mind about his planned judgment. So now, this individual says that if you believe that God knows all things and has eternally planned all things, then you must say that he was insincere when he told Jonah what to prophesy. But hold on a second. As one of my favorite theologians, Buddy Bauchum puts it, that dog won't hunt. Because, question here, who sent Jonah to Nineveh in the first place? God did. Who told Jonah what to preach? God did, who actually saved the people of Nineveh. Once again, God did. And so from the beginning to the end, this was all a work of God. And so if God sends Jonah to Nineveh because of his pity and compassion for them, according to Jonah 4.11, uh, then why is it a change in his plans when they actually repent at the message of the prophet? Uh, that doesn't make sense at all. Uh, you see, using Jonah 3 to try to say that God uh, somehow changes his mind, neglects to remember that God is the one who actually sent Jonah in the first place, and that he is the one who brings about saving faith and repentance. As Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. The entire thing, faith, salvation, all of it is a gift from God himself. And so those using Jonah chapter 3 to try to say that God changes his mind have to answer how it is an example of, change, of God changing for him to command others to change or else they will face destruction. It's the human who change, not God. And so we see here that God did not change in either of these first two scenarios. Objection 3 that you will hear at various points. Some will say that God changed his plans after the fall. Now, this line of thinking is ultimately seeking to promote the idea that once Adam and Eve sinned, God somehow had to completely change his plans at that particular point because he was caught off guard. And all I want to do here in answering this objection is to show you that the fall did not change God's eternal plans. If the God... If the fall made God somehow have to change his plans, then how is it that he determined the plan of redemption before the world was ever even created? Ephesians 1, 3-5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So if God had a change in plan after the fall, as is being alleged in this objection, why is it that he made the decision as to who he would save before the fall, before the creation of the universe? Once again, this objection is removed by looking at the clear testimony of Scripture. The redemption of humanity was not somehow a last-minute effort on the part of God. It was the plan from eternity past that he would send Christ to purchase people for himself. It was clearly a plan that we would be adopted in Christ as those who are his followers, who would place faith in him, who would be redeemed by his work on the cross. So this objection does not hold up. Last objection, and then we're going to move into a couple applications of this doctrine. This final objection, Christ changed when he came on earth for the Incarnation. Hebrews 13.8, which discusses Christ being the same yesterday, today, and forever. If you've ever read that passage, you might have had a thought running through your head as to how that works when we are considering the Incarnation. Because Christ actually took on human flesh. Christ grew from a little baby to a man in terms of his humanity, right? He, is human flesh, breathed its last, and then it rose again. He suffered, he bled, he died, he ate, he drank. He went through the entire human experience. And so how is it that we can say Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and still assert all of these things that are true about his humanity? Because as concerning his divine nature. He never changed, which is why Hebrews 13.8 makes the point that it does. Philippians 2, 5 through 8, it makes the statement, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality of God a thing to be grasped. But emptying himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled, him, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so the, the text here clearly talks about the humility of Christ in coming to the cross, and he gives up the privileges of heaven. He does not give up his divinity, but he gives up the privileges of heaven to come down to earth, that he is truly human and he is truly God. And it is the mystery, it is the wonder of the incarnation that God took on human flesh. And, and so, people, we, we are right to say that Christ took on flesh and died, but that divine nature never changed. And that is what we are talking about when we say God that Christ did not change according to Hebrews 13.8. Now let's move into our final section here and talk about a couple of applications in closing. Uh, what I'm really trying to get at here is the so what question. Why does this doctrine even matter? Well, if you go back to Malachi 3.6, uh, you see the last part of the verse, Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. So all of the things that we talked about in regards to the wickedness of the Israelites In the context of Malachi, all of their unfaithfulness, still, God says here that he would still use them, uh, that there is a remnant who would be redeemed, that he would use them to bring the Messiah into the world. And that's because of the fact, that's grounded in the fact, that God himself does not change. It's quite the list if you go through it, all of the, the unfaithfulness, all the sins that they were committing, Yet, with all that, God would not change his mind. He would still be faithful. He would judge them. He would rebuke them. He would discipline them. But he used Israel to bring the Messiah to set up the church. He used Israel for that purpose. He did not abandon his promises to them, even when they deserved it. They never deserved his promises in the first place. They would suffer the consequences for disobedience. God certainly rebuked them as a son whom he loves. However, God was steadfast. He used Israel according to the plans for the purposes of his kingdom, and he will use his church also. And that's why we as believers can have certainty, because when we are weak, God is strong. He's not going to change his mind about us. He's going to continue to sanctify us, continue to call us to live according to his word, and the fact that we are justified in Christ once we have exercised saving faith, once we have been regenerated to saving faith. That will never change. A second application that I want to bring up here. Now, many in this world believe that truth is not absolute. They believe that truth is not knowable. Uh, we've talked about that a little bit on this podcast. I'll leave a link to a previous episode below. But they think that you can, you should determine your own reality because nothing exists beyond this world. Uh, that is because in a secular worldview, they have nothing that is unchanging to ground truth or morality in. They have no changeless standard. Um, anyone listening to the podcast want to make the argument that the government doesn't change? Uh, I mean, we, we all know that it does. Uh, one man is in a presidential position for 48 years, and depending on how many terms he gets elected, and that's it. Uh, the decisions that the government makes change all of the time. We as human beings, we change all the time. And we change our minds from everything of what we're going to have for breakfast to major life decisions. So really, if you, if you take God out of the equation like the secular worldview does, you have nothing that does not change to ground concepts such as truth and morality in. But the Christian worldview is different. That our God does not change and he reveals himself so we can know truth. It is grounded in him. Morality is grounded in his character. Uh, This doctrine has immense impact for us in these ways. And I want to give you one last application here before we close this podcast episode. The situations of your life will change. The world will change. Many things can and do change. Example 1, 2020. Example number 2, 2021. However, knowing the unchangeable God gives us the anchor to hold on to. Whenever governmental authorities persecute us, we do not fear because God is in control and he does not change. Whenever family and friends betray you, you can know that you still have a God as a Christian who loves us. Whenever you go through sicknesses and diseases and illnesses and all kinds of trials, God is still the same. And so this doctrine about God not changing, it is the unmovable foundation He is the unmovable foundation to base our lives upon. That we can know with certainty that he is who he is, that he's not going to somehow change his mind about us, that his plan is not going to change tomorrow. That he's not going to decide, oh, you're not justified anymore, even though I regenerated you to saving faith. We can have confidence because of the fact that God's character stays the same. So thank you so much for taking the opportunity to listen to this particular episode today. Definitely feel free to drop me a comment. Let me know your thoughts and all the above. Check out the thechristianmanifesto.org where uh, we have tons of resources on theology, apologetics, politics, culture, all kinds of worldview issues. Go, give, uh, go check that out. Be sure to follow myself, Jared Links, on Twitter and Facebook. And until next time, remember to be always ready to give a defense for the hope that lies within you. God bless.